Hello, I'm Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great pleasure to introduce this podcast. In it, we will be discussing the paper, Developing and Validating the Communication Function Classification System for Individuals with Cerebral Palsy, by Mary Jo Cooley-Heidecker and colleagues, which is due to be published in the August issue of the journal. It's going to be discussed by Professor Mary Jo Cooley-Heidecker, who is Assistant Professor at the Department of Speech-Language Pathology, University of Central Arkansas, Conway, Arkansas, in the USA, and Professor Peter Rosenbaum, who is Professor of Pediatrics at McMaster University, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Please, can we start with you, Mary Jo, to discuss the background? Okay, thank you, Peter. When I was starting to look in research for cerebral palsy and communication disorders, I noticed that certainly the gross motor function classification, the GMFCS, was being used a lot at the activity participation level of the World Health Organization's ICF framework, and we had the manual abilities classification system for hand function, and there wasn't a corresponding version for communication. And communication, with this aspect of speech, language, hearing, and a body structure function level, hasn't been talked about too much in cerebral palsy at the activity participation level. So that led me to seek out people that were interested in trying to develop what that would look like. And so my team and I worked through a similar strategy as was used for the, for the GMFCS with looking at the literature, doing nominal group, focus group, Delphi survey, reliability surveys, and now um, have published the CFCS, the Communication Function Classification System, that has five levels similar to the GMFCS and max, and ranging from being an effective communicator with people they know well and people that are unfamiliar to them in all situations down to being seldom effective at a level five with even people that know them well. Thank you. Turning to you, Peter, please would you like to comment on this? Well, I think the most intriguing challenge that we faced was defining what we were talking about and I would underscore what Mary Jo said about the importance of the broad notion of communication, of which speech is one important variant. Obviously, today's podcast is an example of that. But we have, I think, in the last decade, with the usefulness of the International Classification of Functioning Framework, been challenged to think about what I would call bigger units of function, in this case communication, of which speech is one version, of which uh, augmentative communication is another, of which sign language is another, and trying to look more broadly than we have traditionally done at aspects of activity and participation. Yeah. And as Mary Jo and her colleagues comment in the paper, this concept of communication is very different from the previous one, so the motor and manual function classification systems, because it's an interchange between people rather than just one person doing something. Right. So where motor function you do without other people, hand function you do with yourself, you almost always, I would say, communicate with the purpose of interacting with another person and establishing some sort of shared understanding, some sort of shared meaning. The challenge with, as we try to 
describe what would be the functional levels. We always had the endpoints in mind, so we always knew that a level one CFCS communicator is somebody who's able to communicate to whoever they want in any situation in real time in when they can talk back and forth. And we always knew that level five communicators were the ones that were seldom effective communicating even with people that knew them well. And so the challenge primarily was what were meaningful functional levels between that? What were the word pictures that would describe level two, three, and four? One of the things we were very interested in is we knew it wasn't just speech. We talked about could we have one rating that looked at any way to communicate. And as we looked at the ICF framework, it talks about communication as being not just speech, it's nonverbal, it's the use of assistive technology such as augmentative and alternative communication, and certainly people who are effective communicators using augmentative and alternative communication can be very effective with people that they don't even know well. So we felt that using the ICF framework, it was really about However you communicate, certainly a lot of us use nonverbal, can't see me gesturing right now in this podcast, but I am, even though you can't see me. And we're using nonverbals and speech, and you could certainly use assistive technology such as augmented communication and get your messages across and understand what other people are saying. Thank you. Uh, Peter, do you want to comment? Um, well, no, I, I, think, uh, I think Mary Jo's covered those points very well. Uh, it really is quite different from the other elements, the other classification systems, as you pointed out, Peter. And this, I think, implies, of course, that the people making the classification have to be people who are familiar with the individual's capability. And in some cases, just like for the GMFCS, we've never said that this should replace all the other assessments or tests. So we would assume that a professional that knows this person well, so a speech-language pathologist, uh, would have been working with them, probably have done some assessment with them, and to have a better understanding of this person's everyday performance as well as their possible capacity. But the CFCS itself then is based on somebody who is familiar with this person, their understanding of how effective a sender and receiver this person is with people that know them well, familiar people, as well as people who don't know them, unfamiliar partners, and how quickly can the communication happen. Slow communication is a barrier for some of our individuals with cerebral palsy. It can be a barrier in employment issues. It can be a barrier for educational issues. If you have a lot of downtime where you have to wait for somebody to understand the message, to respond, or you have to wait for somebody to compose a message, for example, using a computerized speech-generating device, or you didn't understand them the first time because of a speech issue, and they have to repair, and you have to help them repair to understand what they say. So those became then important concepts as we tried to differentiate our levels two, three, and four. Thank you. You mentioned a few times about people who know the person being assessed. 
That comes up in the paper, doesn't it, where the interrate reliability between parents and professionals was one of the less strong areas, wasn't it? And you thought that might be because of familiarity playing a role. Yes, perhaps there is a difference between, certainly parents know their children in home situations, in community situations, as well as other settings, where if somebody is in a medical setting, they probably typically will see that child only in that setting and will have to rely on other views to know what's going on with the child or people in an educational setting, professionals in an educational setting might um, see this child, again, in a little more limited situation than parents. But that's certainly an area that we think will be interesting to see what is the um, differentiation. Why did we have lower agreement when we looked at parent professional ratings versus professional inter-rater? This, of course, also speaks very powerfully to the role of environment. This is a strong component of the international classification of functioning. And just as Beth Tiemann, Bob Palisano's uh, former graduate student, showed in looking at uh, gross motor activity in different settings, I think we're going to see here that the way in which people perform with communication is probably, as Mary Jo is saying, uh, powerfully influenced by the environment. And that's something we have tended to ignore traditionally. We assumed if you could do something, you would just go out and do it. But that obviously is not the case. I think this is an area that clinicians and therapists often struggle with in that we can improve capacity, performance within a controlled environment, such as in a therapy room or in a clinical lab, but the issue is often can we get it to generalize to real-world, everyday performance, especially when we're not there. And so what I like about the ICF is that it takes this thing that we know who provide intervention and do evaluations and really brings it to the forefront for us to think about as we're doing research and as we're doing interventions. Thank you. Is there any other particular point you'd like to make about the concept behind the CFCS? I, I think that when we think about communication, and I'm certainly not the speech-language pathologist, but I did have the advantage of working with Joan Raynell and learning about these ideas a long time ago, one tends to think about the receptive side and the expressive side. And in an assessment, I think it's clearly important to understand the components that go into one's communication ability. And if there are breakdowns on the receptive side, if there are breakdowns in the encoding and planning and output sides, having a detailed understanding of that, what the CFCS is looking at is the overall result of those processes. And it will be very interesting, I think, in future for speech-language pathologists in particular and possibly psychologists to use the CFCS and to look at within stratum variation and to look at aspects of function that people are able to do within a particular level, just as has been done with the gross motor function classification system. And that brings us nicely on to talking about the value that the CFCS brings and the added value to all the other ways of assessing communication. Do you want to discuss that a little, please? 
Sure. I think most of the assessments and classifications that are routinely used by speech and language pathologists and audiologists for the hearing components are focused at a body structure function. That's been the traditional way we've, we've looked at things. And I hope that uh, the CSCS will help people also not ignore the body structure function, but also think about how all these factors, including environment, play into everyday performance at an activity and participation level. Because hopefully what we're all focused on is we don't improve speech production just for the sake of improving speech production. We do it so the individual can participate in the things they want to participate in and have the kind of life that they want. I think with that in mind, it may help people more explicitly focus on intervention goals that the ultimate outcome is this increased participation. And it may help researchers and clinicians to consider what is communication's role in participation, which I think is still in this kind of infancy in the cerebral palsy instruments that, that I see being developed so far to look at participation. Well, that's very helpful. When we talked about concept and value, um, are there other issues that are worth flagging up? I mean, one of them was um, applicability to other groups, wasn't it, than children with cerebral palsy? Yes. So the question we're being asked is, can the CSCS be used with children, youth, adults, other than those with cerebral palsy? And one of the reasons I'm happy to start with cerebral palsy is because I think individuals with cerebral palsy can have a complexity of underlining body structure and function issues. It can be speech, it can be language, it can be hearing, it can be cognitive challenges, and some combination thereof. So I felt that if we could capture communication at an activity participation level that covered the range of individuals with cerebral palsy, their efforts to communicate and the challenges they have, that it may be useful for other populations. And if we're measuring communication or classifying communication at an activity and participation level, then in theory it should be applicable to all disorders regardless of the underlying conditions. Of course, that's the research question. And it's also, I'm now uh, fortunate enough to work with Peter as the leader of another team to see what would classification look for autism and how does the CFCS help or not help with that and what's the additional constructs we might need in a classification tool. You could almost see it being applied even more widely because you could use it as a way of scoring how well one of us does when trying to speak a language in another part of the world. It could even apply to that, couldn't it? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Are you a level four um, communicator in French or Spanish or whatever your second, third, fourth language is? We were talking earlier offline about exactly this idea that one might be able to say something in French, but you risk then having somebody answer you in French, which you don't understand as well as you speak it, or you don't understand the accent of the person who's speaking it back to you. Uh, that might put you at a level three or four 
whereas you might in fact function better with somebody who speaks more clearly or more classically in the language in which one is attempting to express oneself. Yes, or, or for example, if, if one doesn't know how to sign and tries to communicate with a, a person who has a hearing impairment, you could find yourself in the same situation. And in one circumstance, as you said earlier on, depending on the environment, that person might be able to communicate at level five, but with a different person, it might be a much lower level. Yes. So suggesting the classification is going to be affected strongly by environment. Well, if I'm going to intervene as a speech-language pathologist with a level five communicator, if they're communicating at level five and they're seldom effective, probably the first thing I'm going to do is intervene at an environmental level and try to see what is the context. Can I help the familiar communication partner better read or understand how the child's nonverbal behaviors or motor movements might be communicating. So how is the crying or smiling or temper tantrum conveying rejection, let's not do this anymore, and, and that would be the first way I would intervene in an environmental. I work with the communication partners and the environment to first classify or help clarify what's going on. And then I would be trying to add some sort of more acceptable sending for this child to be able to communicate what they want, which they're now doing in an atypical or unacceptable way. I think that's a very, very powerful example of how the thinking that Mary Jo's group has done incorporates ICF ideas, because our tradition has been to fix the child. And what Mary Jo's just described is a kind of social model of disability which looks at the interaction between the performance of the person and the environment in which they're working. And I really like the idea of intervening in this example, intervening with the environment. So already want to see the value of the CSCS and its approach coming through. What has been the sort of reaction so far to it, um, Mary Jo? Have you had much in, in responses, either you know, positive or negative, from colleagues or other professionals or parents or families? I've been a little overwhelmed by how uh, excited and welcoming people have been for this classification. Certainly those that have already adopted an ICF framework and have been using the GMSCS and the MAX have said, finally, finally we have something to classify another very important associated impairment that many of our individuals with CP have. Um, there's currently 12 different translations undergoing, so that's gratifying that people want to try to use it in a variety of settings around the world. So we now have it on the website that can be downloaded for free for people to use, and as we get the translations from people doing them, we'll put those on the website as well for people to try out. You know, this was based on people finding out about it through conference presentations and word of mouth, and so it's still very thrilling to me to get these emails from people around the world that are interested in looking at it and seeing if it would be useful way to classify communication in their clinical or their research world. Yes, thank you. Pete, uh, do you want to make any other comments? 
Uh, two comments. One is that, that the knowledge translation component of, of this exercise has been fascinating. And as Mary Jo said, because the work in progress has been presented, people have become aware of it. And so the enthusiasm for it has been enormous, even though it wasn't yet published. The second comment I would make is a, in a different direction, and that is that one of many questions to be explored is whether interventions, particularly with young children, can enable them to change levels. We know in our extensive work with the GMFCS that people track pretty significantly in the same level over time. But that is probably because mobility is to a very large extent neurologically driven. And while we can enhance aspects of function, we probably don't change the underlying capacity. But it may well be the case that interventions with children who are having difficulties with communication could enhance their capability and they may change levels. And that clearly, as Mary Jo said earlier, needs to be looked at prospectively and longitudinally. That's an open question. And we certainly, as speech-language pathologists, hope that with the assistive technology, computerized speech-generating devices and other ways to communicate, that we hopefully can improve people's communication in a way that assistive technology can assist but can't replace mobility as easily, I think, as some of the assistive technology can replace somebody's voice and, and give them a voice that is more understandable um, through the use of computer technology. Yes. Um, are there any other additional comments you'd like to make, either of you? Well, I just uh, would, again, comment on something Mary Jo said. We've just been funded to develop uh, or to try to develop an autism function classification system. And the work that's been done informally and unfunded to date has been to try to get at what is the essential difficulty that people with autism have. And based on some work which has now, I believe, been submitted for publication and possibly even to developmental medicine, we've been able to determine that social communication is the challenge. The question we've wrestled with is, isn't the CFCS good enough? And for various reasons, we don't think it will address this particular nuanced kind of communication difficulty. Mary Jo is an active participant in this work, and we want to clearly to trade on the experience that she has led in the CFCS development, but uh, we hope to have, in the next two or three years, an autism function classification system analog of the systems that now exist, because we think that this will, in fact, I'm convinced it will, if we get it right, make a huge difference to the way in which we talk about people with autism. Well, we've now come to the end of our podcast. Thank you both very much indeed. The CFCS is, I think, a very exciting development. I hope it will be a really useful addition to ways to assess and help disabled children. I hope everyone listening to the podcast will find that helps them too and will go and read the article. Just to remind you, the article is entitled Developing and Validating the Communication Function Classification System for Individuals with Cerebral Palsy. It's by Mary Jo Cudi-Heidecker and colleagues and is appearing in the August issue. Thank you very much.